the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Gospel of Mark chapter 5, as we continue our journey through this exciting Gospel, we find ourselves in a section where there's four miracles back to back uh, that all demonstrate Jesus' authority over hostile forces. Uh, we saw Jesus calming the storm. We saw him healing the demoniac over the last uh, few weeks. And today we will see his authority over disease and even death. Today we have two snapshots of despair and hopelessness. And in both of these situations, they find hope in Jesus after all human hope is removed. After all human hope is exhausted, they find hope in Christ. And sometimes God allows us to go through discouraging situations and trials to test our faith, to to stretch us as it were, so that He might accomplish something within us, so that He might mold character. But when we're going through these things, we need to be careful not to give up in despair, but to remember, as the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. That the Lord is always with us no matter what we go through. We'll see a couple of examples of faith today. And um, Martin Luther came across this quote this week I thought was good. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. It is living. It is active. It has assurance and confidence in God's grace. He goes on to say, it is so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. And so let's read the text. It's a large portion of Scripture. We're going to cover it in a timely fashion, I trust, today. Beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed on the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is to the point of death, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and was pressing in on him. Verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought... If I just touch his garment, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that power had proceeded from him and had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, and she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came up to the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter, they came rather from the house of the synagogue official. They said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but is asleep. They began laughing at him and putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, For she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this 
And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help again. Our Father, we thank you for this rich text before us which shows us the the compassion and the tenderness of Christ to those who need Him most. Lord, I pray that we would benefit from this time and Your Word this day. That Christ would be exalted in our hearts and in our lives and in our church this very day. Lord, remove cares and distractions. We pray that we might learn of You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last time we saw that Jesus uh, had calmed the storm and then healing the demoniac, and those two situations are very closely related because last time he calms an out-of-control sea, and then the last time he he calms an out-of-control man that's demon-possessed with a legion of demons. And so they're very closely related. The beginning of chapter 5 began with them sailing uh, across to the eastern seashore. We have one of the most graphic descriptions of demon possession that occurs in the Bible. It's a deplorable condition. It's a depressing condition. Self-destruction, cutting himself. And, and Mark paints a very vivid story. And this man became not only a horror to himself, but a horror to everyone else. He was an outcast. He was living among the tombs. But Jesus comes and brings restoration. He makes him whole again. Of course, the demons asked to not be tormented before their time, but to go into the swine. The swine... They kill the swine, essentially, drown them, because demons are bent on destruction. And so, ultimately, what happened is the men in that Gentile town told Jesus, please leave. They beg him, leave. Leave our area. Get out of here. You're causing... So he goes back to the western shore, close to Capernaum, where really his headquarters for his ministry at this part is, and we see quite a, a contrast with the synagogue official saying, please come. See, the Gentiles are saying, please get out of here. He's saying, please come, and the crowds are all around him. So today we have these two miracles, which these two are also very closely related. The healing of Jairus' daughter is interrupted by a woman with a hemorrhage. And the middle story, the woman with the hemorrhage, gives us the key to understanding the surrounding miracle, which occurs as bookends on each side, or a sandwich, uh, depending how you want to look at that. Jesus once again comes into contact with uncleanness. Remember, he was just around the tombs, dead bodies and and demons and all of that previously in chapter 5. Now we find him around a woman that's unclean. Kent read that passage for us, that, that she shouldn't even be in public and as well is touching a corpse. And we'll unpack that as we get to that. <clears throat> Interesting, these Two miracles are sandwiched together in all three synoptic Gospels. They both involve females. One involves a 12-year-old girl, and one involves a female with a 12-year-old suffering affliction in their life. Mark, again, is more expanded out of the three, and he emphasizes things that don't occur in the others. For example, in verse 23, the term of endearment, when the official says, my daughter the vivid picture of the crowd pressing upon him. We only really get that in Mark, at least in that intensity, and the weeping and wailing at the official's house as well. So my purpose today is that we would come away from here seeing that Jesus cares about our need. Whatever that need is, whatever that desperate situation is that's in your life, He cares. He is there to listen, and He is full of compassion, and He offers grace in every situation. So first of all, verses 21 to 24, we see the urgent plea of a parent desperately seeking for the life of his daughter. I've already mentioned he's crossed back over to the western side where upwards of 15 references to Jesus' public ministry has already occurred along the western seashore of the Lake of Galilee. There's a large crowd that meets him right at the sea a large crowd gathered around him so that he stayed on the seashore. So you can picture the scene. Here he is, he just comes back. We don't know how long he was gone, maybe 24 hours, it's speculation, of a short period of time. And there's a crowd already to meet him. And then that's where he's at, and that's where we pick up the story. And so let's unpack this. Let's let's consider Jairus' cry for help. It's It's a plea for help. And first of all, who was this man? Well, it says one of the synagogue officials. 
So we need to ask ourselves, what's a synagogue? A synagogue was a place of worship. A synagogue could, could be begun with as little as 10 Jewish male members. Okay? Didn't have to be a, a huge empire, a big uh, foundation of any sorts, but it could be very small. So there were multiple synagogues, places of worship, um, scattered around Galilee. Well, when it says that he was an official, that doesn't mean that he was elected necessary. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that he was rich or anything, but he was probably well-to-do. And, and what was his job? His job was everything from building upkeep to the preparation of the scrolls that would be read on the Sabbath day, uh, ordering the readings of those scrolls, as well as the, the expounding of the Scripture would actually take place from the various members of the synagogue, actually taking turns. And so that's, that's his, he, there is some prominence to a position such as this, and yet we see, even this man, a desperate cry for help coming to Jesus. We see him falling at his feet. He falls at the very feet of Jesus and implored him earnestly. There's that word again, we saw it many times through the beginning of chapter 5, to implore, to beg, to beseech. And so here now, this man of stature, as it were, throws himself at the feet of Jesus, imploring earnestly for his daughter. He says, my little daughter. You usually don't say that about a 12-year-old. You know, um, maybe somebody like Emily's size, or you know, a little daughter, you tend to think of smaller, but it's a term of endearment. My little daughter is on the brink of death. It's a, it's a term that, that, that communicates that she was very precious in his eyes. This is my daughter. My daughter. And how does he say it? Is at the point of death. Now that literally means at death's door. Like condition critical. <laughs> okay? This is it. It's not that, you know, she's sick, she might die, there's a 50-50 chance. She's at the brink of death. And so he's desperate and he hears that Jesus is back in the area. He throws himself down at the feet of Christ. Reminds me is what our Lord says to the psalmist in Psalm 50, Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me. The Lord tells us that you will have days of trouble. Trials will come. Difficulties will come to you. But when they do, call upon me. Don't try to endure these in your own strength. You're weak. You're frail. No one can endure the, the trials that a lot, this life has on a sin-cursed earth. Another thing we see is this man is completely humbled. A man of stature. He's, he's humbled over the situation. His only daughter. He's, he's very humbled by this. By the way, Luke tells us that he makes it clear that this was his only child. But even this man of stature, and you think about it, that sickness is the great equalizer among men. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how big of a bank account you have, how many shares of Apple you own, or how many Apple computers you own, or if you live in a cardboard box and you're homeless, sickness and death is the great equalizer among men. They both need, in those situations, help from God. This whole idea, Luke brings it out in uh, chapter 8 and verse 42, that this is his only child, should remind us of something. Did it remind you of that picture that we have of Abraham and Isaac? Remember when Abraham was told to go and take your son, your only son, and put him under the knife? Of course, we know the Lord provides the sacrifice, but for three days they're going, and Abraham's thinking, how am I going to do this? <laughs> you know, he's going in faith, right? But how much more the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who knew not for three days, or three years, or three thousand years, but from eternity past, even as Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Consider the Father's great love for His people. That He would do such a thing as that. Paul tells us very succinctly in Romans 8 and verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also freely give us all things. Christ was made to suffer, to bleed, 
to die for unworthy sinners. What a glorious gospel we have. And, and, and what a picture here of the term of endearment, which just kind of echoes those other things with Abraham and Isaac and even Christ and the Father. And so as we move on, we see this, the intensity of this anxiety that this man has. Please come. Please come and lay your hands on my daughter so that she will get well and live. Please come. And start contrast to the people that had just seen the miracle in verse 17 when they beg Him to leave. Please come. There's a a fearful uneasiness in His words. It's linked with strong desire. He, He wants the Savior to come to lay His hands on His daughter. And we think of when Peter writes, casting all of your anxiety upon Him for He cares for you. And this is really what this man is doing. He's he's falling at the feet of Christ. He's casting all of His care. My one and only daughter is on the brink of death. Please come and lay your hand on her that she may live. It's an interesting picture here as well, is because of the size of the crowd. And I mean, the crowd was so large that he had to stay on the seashore. But he agrees to go, so they begin to make some movement, right, towards there. But there's a sovereign, blessed interruption, which we're going to see in a moment. And, and I just wanted to say that it's a picture. Jesus shows himself, first of all, to be approachable, right? I mean, he doesn't just get off the boat, hey, I've had a rough day over on the eastern seashore. <laughs> I need to get to a house to rest and recuperate, right? He shows himself to be approachable. He shows himself to be tender and and with a long ear to those that need him, to listen to them. He enters, really, into the desperation of this man. And they begin to leave. They begin to head over there. And, And just one application I thought of this week is that as elders and church officers, we're not saviors, but we are overseers. We are shepherds. We present ourselves as approachable on any issue. If there's any concern whatsoever, we beg you, we plead with you, come to us and talk to us so that we can talk about those things. Open communication is always best. It is true in any relationship, even in a marriage, and how much more in the church. So we see Christ entering in into this man's suffering. Secondly, we see this uh, sovereign interruption, as it were. Hum- this lady's human or desperation and faith drive her to touch Jesus. Have you ever felt desperate in any situation to where I have to get to Christ? I have to get to Christ. Maybe it's been some diagnosis. Maybe it's been some news that you've heard of a loved one. And the first thing you want to do is align yourself with the Lord and pour out your heart before Him. Well, look with me at this beautiful account, verses 25 to 34. Let me read the first few verses again. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, who had endured much at the hands of many physicians, she had spent all that she had, was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. We see, first of all, faith concealed. You picture the scene now. He, Jesus has just told Jairus, or essentially they begin to move that way, the text says, that they're on their way, right? We're on mission, okay? We're, we're heading to the 12-year-old girl to heal. And then here comes this situation. And as one commentator said, without a moment to spare, he's forced to spare it. For there's someone else in the crowd that has a need. There's someone else that comes and falls at his feet begging for Christ, begging for His touch, begging for His time, begging for His ear. And then this woman, of course, she remains nameless in contrast to the other gentleman. But she had probably no doubt heard about Christ's teaching. She had heard about the healings that had taken place at other times in the Capernaum area. We don't know for sure if they're exactly there, but they're in that region for sure. The very fact that a huge crowd was there to meet Him it would indicate that. Let's consider this woman's condition. First of all, as Kent read for us from Leviticus 15, she was unclean. Okay? 
She was unclean. She had no business being in the midst of a crowd. She had no business going to the Son of God, right? I mean, humanly speaking, of course, right? And, and, and not, not only was she unclean for the 7 or 14 days, or maybe some extended amount of time, as Kent read, this was 12 years cut off from the people. We don't know what her standing was. If she was a worshiper of God, it would indicate that there was certainly that. But she was cut off. And so that even in the temple, there was a section reserved for women. She was, she was not even able to go there. She wasn't even supposed to be in public without letting people know that she was unclean. And look at the text in verse 26, I believe it is. She had endured much. Now that's, that kind of softens what the, the force of the word is. The word is pasco, which means to suffer. It's the word that speaks of Christ's suffering. It's the word that speaks of Paul being persecuted. This was painful. <laughs> She suffered, you could translate it, much at the hands of many physicians. Reminds me of Job in chapter 13 and verse 4. He says, you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Well, she had endured worthless physicians. They had prescribed the wrong remedy so that she had actually gotten worse. She was spending all that she had in a desperate attempt that her medical condition could be remedied. But it had actually grown worse. We can relate to that. When we're sick, or especially diagnosed with something that's not easily treated, we for, all of a sudden everything else has little significance. What has much significance is pouring everything we have into getting the remedy for the sickness that we may have. We go to great lengths at any cost. Why? Because we want our health. It's, it, we want life. We want our health. But for this woman, it was all in vain. It was all in vain. Not only was it in vain, her condition actually worsened. It had grown worse rather than be- better. And in verse 29, where it says, when she was healed of her affliction at the end, the, the word for that, literally, it's, it, the literal uh, word it means a whip or a scourge, uh, but it also can mean a condition of great torment. So not only was she healed of a flow of blood, but this was a tormenting flow of blood. She was in pain. She had poured, she'd spent everything she had, and her condition had done nothing but grow worse. In the Jewish Talmud, there's a record of various medicines that would be given for certain illnesses. And William Lane brings this out in his commentary. I thought this was interesting. But listen to some of the various treatments for her condition. Okay, The first is drinking a goblet of wine with a powder compound of rubber and alum. Another one consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked with wine with a summons, a rise out of your flow of blood. A third, this is probably the most funny, carrying the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain cloth near your body for a period of time. <laughs> now you can see, these are what, this is what she is being told to do. She's, okay, this one didn't work. Okay, I'll go over here and I'll try the Persian onion and the, you know, the, the summons and all of that. And Okay, I'm willing to try the ostrich egg thing because I'm at my wit's end, right? We can laugh at that, but that it shows us something of the desperation that this woman had endured. You can imagine what these physicians would charge for each of those things, right? This wasn't free advice. This wasn't going to about.com. This was something that you went to somebody that supposedly had some knowledge, and you're told this, and you're exchanging money for it, and you're not getting better. Taking rubber probably would make your condition worse. Um, you know, and today, we have quacks, we have poor physicians. Uh, sometimes the wrong thing is diagnosed for various conditions. But I just want to look at it spiritually. Sometimes you have psychologists and psychiatrists that will throw you on the couch and tell you that deep down, you're really good. It's something that happened in your childhood, blah, blah, blah. And they ignore the sin condition. <laughs> Only be made whole by a forgiving God. Some 
physicians with good intent will say, well, that's okay. You just keep these Ten Commandments and try your best and and you'll be all better. No. (laughs) You need to look to Christ. That's how you're going to be made better is to actually see that there's someone that lived the perfect life and died the horrible death for you. So she knew she needed Jesus. Twelve years. I can't imagine that length of time. That's, that's a long time that she has endured this. And she must have heard of Jesus back in chapter 3, verse 10. It says that He had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around Him in order to touch Him. And so suddenly now we see in the story as Mark pens this, getting his information from Peter, he, he, he woves together a picture for us. We had this synagogue official and now we have this outcast sort of being woven into the story. But you see the parallel with them, right? They're both at the same level when it comes to sickness and desperation and needing Christ. Just like the synagogue leader who might have had it all together and had the big house and the well-to-do and all of that, when it comes to his daughter being ill, all of that goes out the window. He needs Christ. He needs a touch from Christ. And we see really a picture of the wideness of God's mercy. It doesn't matter if you're upper class or lower class or you've got the big bank account or the big house or you're homeless. It doesn't matter. In desperation and humility, it it, it brings us down to the same plane. And this woman here, I just have to touch His garment. Verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind Him and touched His cloak. Three verbs are there. After hearing about Jesus, she came up and then she touched. You see how they're connected there. And by the way, the cloak, it it was probably the tassel. So observant Jews would wear an outer garment that had tassels on there. And one of the gods, I can't remember if it's Matthew or Luke, but makes it very clear that it was all she touched was the tassel. Just a little cloth that was hanging. That's all she touched. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Verses 28 and 29, we see faith rewarded. For she thought, okay, if, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now, you see what she's saying in verse 28. It, it says she thought. I think it's Matthew that says she was saying and saying to herself. It's in the imperfect tense, which... which communicates the idea that she kept saying this to herself. If only I can get there. If only I can get there. Maybe she's on the outskirts of the crowd. That's what motivated her. I have to get to Jesus. If only I can get there. I believe that if I just touch Him, I will be healed. Now, the popular thought in the day then involved the idea if you touched a garment of someone, of, uh, that the power and dignity of that person would transfer from the garment. So maybe her thoughts weren't 100% accurate, but she knew that she had to get to Christ. You see, it is not how huge your faith is. It's not, I mean, what does it say? It talks about faith of a mustard seed. The Lord said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. It's not how huge your faith is. A little bit of faith goes a long way, according to Jesus. The key, brethren, and mark this well, is not the size of your faith. The the application is not that I go home and I just muster up more faith so that I can be like the woman that's bleeding. That's not the key. The, the, The key, brethren, is the object of your faith. What is the object of your faith? It's not something you do. It's something that Christ has done. It's something of getting to Jesus. Getting close to Christ. It's seeing Him and the beauty of His work and His finished work on the cross. It's it's resting in what He has accomplished. Jesus sovereignly honors this woman's faith. It may have been mixed with some of the popular tradition of the day, but Jesus is making an example here. He honors this woman's faith and heals her. And, And by the way, it's not. I want you to notice the key word. Remember, we've seen it again and again through Mark. Immediately, immediately. We have several of those in our text. Verse 29. Immediately, the flow of her blood dried up. This wasn't a process. This wasn't a healing that took months. It was instantaneous in a microsecond. 
her flow dried up. And I think that's in stark contrast in verse 25 and 26, when you have the idea of 12 years, she's endured much. Throughout that whole time, she's tried all of the human, humanly things that are possible for this. But when Jesus comes, and when Jesus honors her faith, it's instantaneous. She is made whole. Brothers and sisters, she knew that something had happened. It says, she felt in her body that this had happened. She knew that something had happened in her body, that she had been healed. And it's, it's more than that. I mean, uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. But she had even more than that. And she was healed. She was Finally, she was given her life back after 12 long years. Can you even begin to imagine the emotions that were going through this woman? The, the, the passion that was going through her, her thoughts. I had not only worked my way to the Savior, the one, the only one that could help me, that Jesus honored that. And I was made whole. One of the Scottish pastors from the 1800s, Thomas Chalmers, says, Faith is like the hand of a beggar that gets a gift while adding nothing to it. That's exactly what this woman had done. She had added nothing to it. She just had faith, believing. Well, verses 30 to 34, faith clearly revealed. Look at verse 30. Immediately Jesus perceiving in Himself that the power proceeding from Him had gone forth, turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched My garments? It's only in... Mark's Gospel, by the way, that emphasizes that power had gone out of Jesus. But if you think about this, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, incarnate, right? That He is the very power of God. That He represents the Father. He is the God-man. And so that phrase should not um, shock us. In verse 31, you see the impatience of the disciples. You know, when he says, who touched me, his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around you when you say, who touched me? And you can see the impatience because, remember, in their mind, it's like, okay, we just got off the boat, uh, here's the crowd, Jairus has come, he's pleaded for his daughter, we're on mission, we're heading there. But suddenly, when we've stopped, and now other people are getting close, and so they're thinking, you know, why are we, why do we even stop? And then, of course, Jesus, this is, this is an important aspect of the story too. It says in the NAS that he looked around to see the woman who had done this. Again, another imperfect, which, which communicates the idea that he kept looking around. Kept looking around. Of course he knew he's God in the flesh, but he kept looking around. And I think it was so that this woman would eventually realize, I have to fess up and I have to come. Because that's the next thing you see is that the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, what's the insignificance of that? The significance is that Jesus just doesn't want to go around shooting power out and people getting healed and there's no relationship there. Discipleship is more than getting something from God. It's a relationship. It's communion. There's personal contact, as it were. And that's what Jesus wanted. It's getting more. It's, it's, it's wanting her to actually have that fellowship. And what is your motive for being a Christian? Of course, God saves. God has saved you. But is it just to get your needs met? Or is there a passion and a longing to have fellowship with Jesus? To feast on His Word. To be filled. To be fed. To be encouraged and to have your faith strengthened. This is why the Lord's Supper is so important. I'm glad we can do it in the the main worship service today, but it really is a means of grace. We remember what Christ has done. We take the bread. We, we drink the cup remembering His body and, and drinking the cup remembering that it's His precious blood that makes me acceptable before a holy God. That it's not about anything else. So the woman comes broken, falling at the feet of Jesus. Remember Psalm 34, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Here she comes. She comes with courage. She, she comes with fear, but she comes with courage and, and, and thankfulness for what has happened. It says, and she told the whole truth. You almost picture that 
while I was on the outskirts way over there, I had overheard that Jesus is back from the eastern shore. Uh, this is this isn't it, but you know, and, and I, I realized this is my only chance. Through his ministry earlier, I'd heard of the healings, I've heard of the afflictions being removed. This is my one chance. I'm right in this area. I must get to Jesus. I know I'm unclean. I know I shouldn't do such a thing, but I know I need my Savior. And she proceeds to work her way through the crowd. When it says she told the whole truth, I can't help but to think she's just pouring out her heart to Christ. She falls down at His feet. It's the third time, fourth time we've seen that happen in chapter 3. The demoniac, when he had all the demons, the demoniac, after he was healed and all the demons were removed, Jairus, the synagogue official, and now this woman. I want you to see, by the way, that's a picture. Remember the ten lepers, when ten were healed, only one came back to give thanks. She comes at his feet, giving thanks. I want you to look in verse 34 with me. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now I want to look at this for a moment. First of all, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Haven't you read Leviticus 15? How dare you come near me, right? There's none of that there. There's words of assurance. Words of comfort from the Comforter and the One that has compassion. Daughter. Again, a tender term. Daughter. And then look, when it says your faith has made you well, that word there is sozo. That's the word for salvation. Your faith has saved you, is essentially what he is saying. Of course, we know that those things are paralleled. When someone's physically healed, it's often a picture of spiritual healing as well. But in the original, it is that your faith has saved you. And it was the grasp of her faith in Christ, not that she had faith to touch a garment. Jesus tells her to go in peace. She had peace with God. Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you can have peace in this life is knowing that your sins are dealt with. Knowing that you are, as it were, spiritually whole before a holy God. That your sins have been paid for on the cross. That you have been, as it were, justified by faith. Justified in the court of heaven. That those sins will not be brought up again. Jesus says, be healed of your affliction. The idea is be whole. And I already made reference, I think it's physically and her spiritual condition being whole. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we see this blessed sovereign interruption, this desperation of this woman that she has to get to Christ. Now we come back to the initial story, and we'll see how this plays out uh, very briefly here. Uh, Jairus must now follow the example of this woman's faith. The the last section here uh, continues with the first account that we saw. And and remember, where's Jairus at? He's witnessing this whole thing, right? They're they're ultimately heading to his home. He's, He's still present. How do we know that? Well, people from his house come to say it right there. So, He's witnessed this whole scene. The the, the whole example of the woman gives the key for Jairus of what faith really looks like. And I want you to see, first of all, the tragic news that comes, verse 35, and while he was still speaking, Jesus had just finished saying, or maybe he was still saying, be healed of your affliction, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died, why trouble the teacher anymore? Can you picture this? Now, there was hope back in 21-24. to 24. There, there was hope that if He could come, that He would heal. Now all hope is lost. It's, so it seemed, right? The delay to heal the woman was a deadly cost for the little girl. She had died. If only Jesus had come sooner. You know, picture what's going through this man's mind. You know, it's this woman's fault that now my daughter is dead. You know, maybe he's thinking that. But look at what Jesus says. 
Look at what he says in verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Don't be afraid. Don't fall into that. Don't listen to that. Actually, the word that's used for Jesus overhearing is a word that can mean ignored or refusing to listen. So Jesus was either ignoring or refusing to listen to what was being said. And He says these comforting words, do not fear. We know that Jesus is the only one that can conquer death. We know that He has conquered death for us. And by the way, it's an imperative. It's a command when he says only believe. It is, it's believe. <laughs> believe. And so, it's a call to fervent faith. You see here, just in those couple of verses, uh, the swinging pendulum, as it were, one from just absolute desperation that my daughter is dead. There's no more hope. It's hopeless, you know. All the way over now to, yes, Jesus can. <laughs> he can do this, right? And we see hope. There's hope as they press on. Romans 8 and verse 24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hope for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Well, they come, verse 37. Um, By the way, Jesus only allows uh, Peter, James, and John to come along. They come to the house. There's a bunch of commotion. There's lots of wailing and weeping. These were hired mourners, and we see that they ultimately mock Jesus. By the way, in Israel at this time, and actually the surrounding areas, even the poorest were supposed to hire two flute players and one professional whaler. So even the absolute poorest were supposed to hire these people, and we come to Jairus' house, and, and, and there's a whole house full of them. They're outside, they're inside, so that shows something of his stature in society. This whole house is filled with them. And Jesus rebukes their wailing and He states very boldly, the girl has not died, but is asleep. Now, look at their response. Verse 40, they began laughing at Him. You can picture it. They began mocking. They began saying, who are you? We're professionals. We know what dead looks like. (laughs) She's dead. There's no breathing, no heartbeat. You know, we know what this looks like. And so they begin mocking Him. It's actually a, a contrast there as well. That we see how quick their mourning goes from mourning on behalf of those who hired, right? Jairus' family. To suddenly this cold, external former, former, uh, it's a formality of mocking Compared to Jesus' pity and sensitivity. Compared to Jesus really truly entering in into the need of this official. Coming alongside. Being there. So they put everyone outside except for the three and the parents. So he puts them all outside. Takes the child's father and mother. It's the first mention we have of the mother who has probably stayed back at the house. His own companions and they entered the room where the child is. Well, we know what happens, but you know, if you're moving slowly in the story, there's great anticipation. What's going to happen? Who's really right? How's, is, bringing somebody back from the dead is quite a feat. And that's exactly the way they looked at it. We see this compassionate restoration of life as a picture of the resurrection. We'll unpack that in a minute. Jesus shows mercy to the child at this critical moment. He takes the child by the hand. And he tells her, Talitha, come, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. By the way, that's an Aramaic phrase, which because Mark is writing to Romans, he would interpret these things. If Jews were the primary uh, recipients, he would not do that, but he does that later in chapter 7. But that's why it's interpreted for us. So it's not that Jesus comes into the room and says, I can't touch a corpse, I'm just going to speak the word, right? It's not that He just touches the forehead. He takes her by the hand. Think of that. Think of the compassion that is communicated there. We haven't seen that yet. He takes by the hand. The leper earlier in chapter 1, He did touch. But this, He takes her by the hand. 
and tells her to get up. This is the first of many times of the laying on of hands in Mark. But look with me in verse 42. Here it is again, um, just so there's no confusion. It's not that she kind of began to move around. It was immediately the girl got up and began to walk. So we went, we went from death, not only to life, breathing in a heartbeat, but rising, getting up, and walking. <laughs> and, and immediately. I think immediately means immediately here. Without delay, she gets up and walks. Of course, Jesus says, gives her something to eat. Now, the liberal commentators love to take this text to task and say, she wasn't really dead. She was unconscious, of course, and it just so happened she came back to consciously. Right? <laughs> Why comment on the Bible if you don't believe it? <laughs> oh, don't get me started on that. But Why comment on the Bible if you don't believe in the supernatural things of the Bible? One indication that we would know that she was really dead was all of those mourners and wailers, their response. Ha! <laughs> Are you nuts? That's, that's essentially what their response They're laughing. They're mocking Him. They were all convinced that she was dead. And then I want you to look at another immediately. The middle of verse 42. Now, Mark didn't have to include the word right here. Again, the beginning of 42 says, immediately the girl got up, began to walk, for she was 12 years old. But notice what he says. He wants to emphasize, and immediately they were completely astounded. The word for completely is mega. Mega astounded. The word for astounded is a fascinating word. It's a state of consternation, a profound emotional experience to the point of being beside oneself. So, not only were they that, (laughs) the point of being beside themselves, this emotional experience of actually feeling beside yourself, but it was completely feeling like that. And it came upon them immediately. And so, he's emphasizing that this happened very quickly. Then, of course, the story ends with the admonition to secrecy again. We, We swing back and forth through the early chapters of the Gospel of uh, secrecy to go and tell all and, and so forth. And so this one ends in that. So what a wonderful text in Mark. You can see how the, the woman with the hemorrhage was a picture, kind of a type for Jairus as he would see that. And by the way, included in those was the three who would go on the Mount of Transfiguration with him, but also the mother and the father. This extreme emotional experience to the point of being beside themselves. I think that was just an amazing thing. It'll be a wonderful thing to hear about that more in heaven. Well, I leave you with two just uh, important thoughts to take away as we end today. First of all, death and disease are results of the fall of Adam. Okay, Sin spread to the world. Sin is the greatest spiritual disease that there is. Um, sickness and death are unnatural And Jairus' daughter being brought back to life is a beautiful picture of the compassion of Jesus. Taking a little girl by the hand and all of that, but it paints a bigger and brighter picture than that. It shows that that His conquering power over death and unbelief. It's a picture that every single person in this world is dead in trespasses and sins. and, And that we are spiritually sick. That, that, That we can't save ourselves. And that salvation is a gift of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Spurgeon said, too many, To too many, faith seems a hard thing. The truth is, it is only hard because it is easy. Man complicates salvation. A simple looking to and trusting in and laying hold of by faith, Christ you will be saved. Realizing you're a sinner, that He has paid for your sins. Salvation is there. It's a gift of God. It's by grace through faith. But man wants to complicate these things. Jump through these legalistic hoops. Go knock on a hundred doors. Go do this. Flagellate yourself. All of these kinds of things. And so what Spurgeon says is true. The truth is it's only hard because it's easy. (laughs) In man's mind. And the woman, despite this embarrassing condition, We don't know what it looked like, but a flow of blood communicates there was probably blood present on her outer garments, on her body somewhere. She had this flow of blood. 
She pushes her way to Jesus. She has to get to Jesus. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me ask you, what is keeping you from Jesus? What is keeping you from Jesus Christ? A ready and a willing Savior. Your Creator has given His own Son to redeem unworthy sinners. But we must come to Him. And secondly, you might feel hopeless today, and I have good news for you that someday all things will be completely restored and made whole. Just as this woman was completely made whole, and just as we live in a sin-cursed world, and in all of that, someday all things will be made well. You see, even if you're healed of an affliction, a physical affliction in this life, death still awaits you, right? You're still going to face death. You're still going to have to deal with death. But my dear friends, there is a day coming. There's a day coming when every discouragement and every pain and every tear will be completely removed and we will be made whole. Reading further in 1 Corinthians 15, if we had time, we would have read the whole chapter for a New Testament reading, but just reading in verse 50. And now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, and the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised in the imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will also put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There's a day coming. Sickness, disease, all of that, even death, will be removed. Things will be made. And John tells us it's a purifying hope to have this hope within us as Christians. Beloved, now we are the children of God. We're sons and daughters of God. But it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. But we know this, when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Brethren, no matter what you're going through today, whatever difficulty, by the way, that's the importance of the context of the local church. Sanctification, spiritual growth takes place in the household of God better in any other situation. But we will see Jesus someday. And that is our hope. Hope for the hopeless. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You so much for Christ. We thank You that we see You through Christ. And Lord, as we have read many verses and we know many verses of the love of God for Your people, yet Lord, we see it in narrative form in the text before us. Lord, we thank You that our Savior is approachable, able to be interrupted, that has a long ear to hear our cries of desperation and help, that offers hope to us even when we feel things are hopeless. Lord, how I pray that You would strengthen our faith, that You would encourage us, that You would help us to love Christ all the more, for He is precious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.